The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Okay, we're in Judges 6, 11 through 16. This is Gideon, Judge of Israel, part one. And this is uh, part one and part two are an independent thought under the Gideon sermons. So this is the first half of this thought in Gideon. Okay, uh, it's verses 11 through 16. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. This portion of the account of Gideon, meeting the person identified here, will continue next week. But there is enough detail given to demonstrate, at least from the Hebrew text, that the Lord, meaning Jehovah, was truly incarnate when he appeared to Gideon. The meaning of the word incarnate is embodied in flesh, specifically human form. As we proceed through the verses, it will be evident that this person engaging Gideon is face-to-face -face with him. As we progress, we will be reminded that this is not the first time the Bible indicates such an occurrence. The incarnation, however, is something denied by Jews. There are innumerable commentaries found concerning their position on why it is not possible that Jesus could be both God and man. Here's an example from JewsForJudaism.org. They say, Christians claim that in the birth of Jesus, there occurred the miracle of the incarnation of God in the form of a human being. To say that God became truly a human being invites a number of questions. Let us ask the following about the allegedly truly man, truly God, Jesus. What happened to his foreskin after his circumcision? Did it ascend to heaven or did it decompose as with any human piece of flesh? During his lifetime, what happened to his hair, nails, and blood shed from wounds? Did the cells of his body die as in ordinary human beings? If his body did not function in a truly human way, he could not be truly human as well as truly God. Yet, if his body functioned exactly in a human way, this would nullify any claim to divinity. It would be impossible for any part of God, even if incarnate, to decompose in any way and still be considered God. Now, while I'm reading this, think about an answer that you would give them. How would you refute them? I will do that as we continue. But think about this. By definition, not mystery, 
the everlasting one God in whole or in part does not die, disintegrate, or decompose. For I, the Lord, do not change, says Malachi 3.6. Did Jesus' flesh dwell in safety after his death? 1 Peter 3.18 says Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.44 through 45 claims Jesus was raised a spiritual body. That is, he became a life-giving spirit. No mention of the survival of the flesh is alluded to. In Acts 2.31, it is claimed Peter stated that following the alleged resurrection, Jesus' body did not see decay. Paul is alleged to have also made this claim in Acts 13. However, unless Jesus' body never underwent decay during his lifetime, he could not be God. But if it did not undergo decay, he was not truly human. Now, you can see before I finish that they know the Bible very well. It's like debating an atheist. They know scripture. And if you do not know the Bible, you cannot refute them. So read your Bible. Think on theology. This is what's important when you come across somebody that has these type of things because you get confusion otherwise. That was Gerald Siegel from JewsForJudaism.org. Our text first comes from Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That is something not unique to Jews. That is everybody. We're all scared of death because we're all going to die. And if we don't have a resolution to that, then there is a problem. Christianity resolves that problem. The commentary by Mr. Siegel contains several presuppositions about the incarnation that are incorrect. They are not based on a proper reading of scripture, and they construct straw man arguments. In fact, if he is using scripture as a baseline for his words, his entire commentary is a straw man fallacy. To assume that Jesus' body was a part of God would be to misunderstand or misrepresent the idea of the incarnation. Only the poorest of theologians would claim that Jesus' human body was a part of God. If creation, including any part of it, were a part of God, we would be dealing with something known as pantheism or some concept that is similar to it. The incarnation means that God united with his creation— as his creation is clearly fallen, it means that the Lord united in a manner that reflects the words of Hebrews 2, meaning that in all things he had to be made like his brethren. Therefore, to assume that Jesus' foreskin could not decay is as illogical as to say that God died on a cross, something that you will often hear preachers say because they're not thinking it through. God did not die on a cross. Rather, the human Jesus did the incorruption of Jesus' body after death signified that he had prevailed over death because of his sinless nature. To assume that his fingernails, which were naturally worn down or purposefully clipped from his human frame, could not decay if he is fully God is a fallacy known as a category mistake. Mr. Seagull simply does not understand or he rejects what the actual meaning of the incarnation is. Now, before I go on, I will say that I have all of this laid out in the Doctrine series on the Superior Word YouTube channel, or I can send you the written version if you want it. All of this is addressed there. All of this is explained, and he is doing a very poor job of analyzing what Christians have taught from the very beginning. And you'll see more of that in our second part today. The hypostatic union, or our third part today, the hypostatic union is what defines the person of Jesus. There is a distinction between the humanity and deity of Christ. This point of doctrine describes the union of God and man in the person of Christ, two hyposes or states in one. He didn't possess humanity before his conception, but since his conception, he is clothed in humanity forevermore. And although he is united with human flesh in this union, his deity is not bound by human nature. He remains fully God. His two natures are in not any way separate, and yet they in no way intermingle. This is what the Bible reveals, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old as well. The encounter of Gideon with the Lord is something that points us directly to the incarnation of Jesus. 
It is a reasonable and logical point of doctrine to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three independent thoughts for you today. The first is, if the Lord is with us, why then? It's verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came, rather, vayavo malach Yehovah, and came messenger Yehovah. There's no article before angel messenger. As such, the identification is indeterminate at this point. This is important because of what occurs as we continue through the verses. The problem with translating it as the angel with a capital is that it is either based on a presupposition, if no further information is given, or it is based on knowledge that is not yet available in the narrative itself. It is correct, as will be seen, but the text is highlighting here a point of theology. This is a messenger of Jehovah. The messenger came, verse 11 continues, and sat under the terebinth tree, which is in Ophrah. Vayeshev tachat ha'elah asher be'afrah, and sat under the terebinth, which in Ophrah. In Judges 4, Deborah was said to have sat under the palm of Deborah. The palm is a symbol of uprightness and righteousness. Here, this angel sits under the elah, or terebinth. That is the feminine of ayil, or ram, coming from the word ul, or strength. Also, to sit implies judgment, as when a king sits for that purpose. This messenger has come, he has sat, in order to communicate a judgment, just as Deborah did. The name Afara means female fawn, but that comes from afar, dust, and so it also means of the dust. Verse 11 continues, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. And the reason why, just so you know, a fawn and dust is because of the color of the fawn. That's where the connection is. Don't want to skip over that so that you have a mental idea of why things happen in Hebrew. Verse 11 continues, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. Rather, Ashur le Yoash Abi Ha Etsri, which to Joash, father, the Ezrite. First, Depending on the root, the name Joash means either Jehovah is strong, fire of Jehovah, Jehovah is bestowed, or Jehovah has blessed. Next, in Joshua 17, verse 12, Abietzer was noted. Here, the name is divided by an article. Thus, it says, my father, the Ezrite, or father of the Ezrite. The word Etzer signifies help, coming from the verb Azar, to help. Therefore, we have some picture developing. A messenger is set to render a judgment under a tree denoting strength in of the dust, which belong to Jehovah has bestowed my father, the helper. This messenger appeared, verse 11 continues, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Vegidon beno chovet chitim bagat lehanis mipne Midian, and Gideon, his son, was beating wheat in the winepress to flee from faces Midian. Gideon comes from Gada, to cut down or to cut asunder. Thus, it means cutter, cutter down, feller, and so on, especially cutter off. Next, the word translated as threshed is not the usual one where an ox pulls a cart over the wheat. Here, it signifies to beat. It is the same word used when Ruth beats out what she gleaned. In this case, Gideon is threshing wheat by beating it, and he is doing it in the wine press. The reason for this is because of what it said in Judges 6, 1 through 10. The Midianites came in and they plundered all of Israel. In order to hide from them, Gideon is threshing secretively in a vat. A wine press is the last place one would expect to be used at this time of year because it is not the season for pressing. After beating the wheat, Gideon would thresh it by hand so that the chaff would not fly off into the open sky and be visible from a distance. Rather, as it says, it would flee from faces Midian. As for the wine press, it is a place of judgment, symbolized by the treading out of grapes. However, in the treading out of grapes, there is also a sense of joy because of the produce derived from the process. This is seen in the symbolism of the book of Revelation, where it says in Revelation 14, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Think of the judgment ripe on the earth. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. There is judgment brought upon the enemies of God. But there is also the obvious joy connected with their destruction. When Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of the Oil Press, he was there enduring the suffering associated with judgment on sin. The name Gethsemane is derived from the same Hebrew word used here, gat or wine press. Also, as seen in the previous sermon, Midian means strife or place of judgment. Anytime you see Midian, you're going to think of the tribulation period. We talked about that last week. Everything about the words of this verse speak of defeat, shame, and judgment. The only thing positive is the meaning of the names Gideon and his father. This positive aspect will be advantageous for the typology being presented. That begins to be seen in the next words. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Again, there is no article. Vayera elav malach Yehovah, and appeared unto him messenger Yehovah. Despite there being no article before messenger, we are now given a new insight to consider. The term vayera, or and appeared, has occurred 13 times so far in the Bible. In every single instance but one, it has been connected to either the Lord or God. The one exception is when Joseph appeared to his father Jacob in Genesis 46 verse 29, a passage that pointed to the appearance of Christ to the people of Israel. Thus, though it is not appropriate to translate this as the angel of the Lord because the text does not say it, we are being led to that conclusion nonetheless. Verse 12 continues, and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Vayomer alav, Yehovah imcha, gebur he chayil, and said unto him, Yehovah with you, mighty the valor. This does not mean that Gideon was already known for his past acts of bravery, as many scholars claim. Verse 15 clearly refutes that. In fact, the previous verse indicated just the opposite. Gideon had been peevishly hiding in a wine vat, beating out the little grain that he had for bread. And yet the Lord prophetically addresses him in this way. It is a blessing being bestowed upon him based on what will come to pass, not an acknowledgement of what he is already. As for the words describing him, it says, Gibor he chayil. It is a phrase that is translated in various ways, and it needs to be properly understood. The word Gibor signifies might or strength. So when you hear the word Gibor, you want to think of Charlie Garrett. The word, <laughs> the word Chayil signifies wealth, strength, ability, and more. In this case, what will come about in his future is what defines the word. As such, the Lord is designating him as a warrior. Thus, it speaks of a man of valor. Such is not yet the case, but it will slowly be drawn out of him as the Lord guides his movements on behalf of Israel. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Vayomer love Gidon, be Adoni, veyesh Yehovah imanu, velama metsa'atnu kauzot, and said unto him, Gideon, O oh me, my Lord, and is Yehovah with us? And why found us all this? They are words of incredulity spoken by a thoroughly confused soul to someone that he thinks must be off his rocker. He says this using the term Adoni, my Lord, meaning a human being. In this case, it means something like sir. The previous two uses of malach or messenger are without the article. Gideon doesn't know who this man is, but he is a man who is claimed to speak on behalf of Jehovah. It is the text itself that is building up the profile of the messenger, one step at a time. As such, translations should not get ahead of the text. As for what Gideon says to this person, it is perfectly reflected in the words of the Lord through Moses. Here it says in Deuteronomy 31, Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day. And I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, 
and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? Gideon is questioning if the Lord is even among them at all. How could he be? To support his incredulity, he next says, verse 13 going on, And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And where all his wonders, which recounted to us our fathers to say, Not from Egypt ascended us, Jehovah? The meaning is that if Jehovah is among Israel, then why isn't he acting on behalf of Israel? Everybody see the tribulation period here? The fathers had spoken of all Jehovah had done, performing wonders in order to bring them up from Egypt. If that is so, then shouldn't he be doing the same now? Gideon seems completely unaware that the disastrous state of Israel is their own fault for doing the evil in the eyes of the Lord. But the word meaning the prophet of verse 8, has alerted them that they have fallen from his ways, not obeying his voice. Gideon is just not aware of that at this point. And so he continues, verse 13 going on, but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Nobody translates this properly. Not one version that I read. Ve'ata nitsanu Yehovah vayitnenu bekaf midyan. And now has forsaken us, Jehovah, and given us in palm Midian. He notes that it isn't merely that Israel has been given into the hand of Midian, but into the palm of his hand or the sole of his foot. The word kaf can mean either. Thus, Israel is like an object that is being squeezed in the palm of the hand or trampled under the sole of the foot. They are forsaken and totally oppressed. With his words of melancholy and dejection, a response from the messenger is provided. Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Were we not set before him among the nations? But our glory and our honor have been stripped, and this for many generations. Why has all of this come upon us? The answer is there, recorded in your word. We turned away when we rejected Jesus, and we crucified our Lord. Lord, Restore us as in times past. Bring us to the place of your favor once again. This seemingly endless trouble, let it no longer last. How long, Lord, we ask you, until when? Our second thought today is, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? It's verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, then the Lord turned to him, Vayifen elav Yehovah, and turned unto him Yehovah. Of these words, and it says in the Hebrew, Yehovah, Yud, He, Vav, He. It's very explicit. Of these words, Albert Barnes shows his inability to accept the obvious, saying, The change of phrase from the angel of the Lord to the Lord is remarkable. When messages are delivered by the angel of the Lord, the form of the message is as if God himself were speaking. Though this messenger has simply been called an angel of Yehovah until now, The reason has been to build within the narrative itself the misunderstanding of Israel to accept that God can come in human form. But there has already been precedent for this, such as in the Lord appearing to Abraham and Joshua in like form as well. It specifically says in Genesis that the Lord came up to Abraham right here in Genesis 18. Then the Lord, Yehovah, yod heh vav heh appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, Adonai, that is a term only used when speaking to the Lord Jehovah. If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by on your servant. Okay, everybody see that? The Lord specifically appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18. And funny enough, last night, Hedekon and I started a movie about Abraham where all of this is included. It's a Christian movie. It's very good so far. Take us a couple months to get through it, but we're really enjoying it. (laughs) The wording in this Genesis account clearly indicates the incarnation of the Lord. An honest evaluation of the text leaves 
absolutely no other option available. As for this narrative with Gideon, despite the unambiguous rendering of the Hebrew, the Greek translation continues to say, the angel of the Lord. Ellicott states the following, the reason why the LXX, meaning the Greek translation, retains the phrase, the angel of the Lord, throughout, is because they had the true Alexandrian dislike for the anthropomorphic expressions. For example, for all expressions which seem to them to lower the invisible and unapproachable majesty of the Almighty. He is partially correct, but more specifically, it is the biased inability of the Jews and others to accept that God can present himself in human form that is the crux of the matter. However, the text now reveals that this is exactly what is occurring. It is not the word of the Lord through another. Rather, this is Jehovah incarnate. It is the eternal Christ, Jesus. Verse 14 continues and said, Go in this might of yours. Vayomer lech bekoacha ze, And said, Go in your power this. The Lord indicates that the power Gideon already possesses is sufficient for the calling he is directed to. Therefore, he says, verse 14 going on, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Again, the translation is incorrect. Vehovo shata et Yisrael mikaf midyan halo salachticha and shall save Israel from palm Midian. Not I sent you. The man claims to be Jehovah. This is explicit now because this time he has not said the Lord has sent you. Instead, the words are stated without any such qualifier. He has identified Gideon, he has selected him, and he is sending him. Notice the structure of the words. Gideon has questioned the Lord's doings. The Lord then turned around and claimed he would perform again. Gideon, who has been rather slow on the uptake, will now realize that the person in front of him is claiming to be Jehovah. I got both of them set side by side. If you look at it, you'll see this. This is Gideon first speaking. Not, halo, from Egypt ascended us Jehovah, and now has forsaken us Jehovah, and given us in palm, Bekaf Midian. And then Jehovah responds, and shall save Israel, the opposite of has forsaken, from palm, Mikaf Midian, as opposed to Egypt. They were saved from Egypt, now he's bringing in Midian. Not halo, same word that he just used by Gideon, I sent you. So you see the contrast between the two. Just as the Lord sent Moses to bring Israel up from Egypt, so now he is sending Gideon to save Israel from Midian. But just as Moses failed to understand that the Lord's choice was the correct one, Gideon also questions the appointment. Now, before I go on, what do you think Gideon, or who do you think Gideon is picturing? Something, some person, keep thinking about it. We'll get to it. And when you see it, everything in the rest of the Gideon series will make all kinds of sense to you. Verse 15, so he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Gideon finally gets who he is talking to, despite the lack of confidence in himself. Vayomer alav bi Adonai. He changes it to Adonai. Bama ovoshia et Yisrael. And said unto him, O me, my Lord, speaking to Jehovah, in what I save Israel. Instead of Adoni, my Lord, as to a human, he now addresses him as Jehovah by saying Adonai as to Jehovah incarnate. The text slowly and precisely presents what is going on, developing a theme for the reader to understand and accept what is presented. Unfortunately, Gerald Siegel at the beginning of the sermon still doesn't accept it, and it's right there in the text. It is presented this way so that Israel someday will go to the word and accept what they have denied for so long. This was clearly presented in Judges 6, 1 through 10. We saw that that was the opening section of all we're going to see for the next 10 sermons, or I should say nine at this point because we're almost done with this one. With his understanding now coming to clarity, Gideon still protests the appointment based on his perceived qualifications. Verse 15 continues, and tell me, doesn't he sound like Moses as he does this? Yeah. Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Hine, Behold, my thousand, the dangling in Manasseh. The form of the word alpi is found only here. It is derived from the word elef, cattle. That is derived from alaf, to learn. The connection is that when cattle are yoked, they learn obedience and are tamed. 
However, the word is always used in the plural to refer to cattle. This is singular. To say my cow is the least in Manasseh wouldn't match the parallelism of the next clause. Hence, most scholars and many translations take this as coming from Eleph, a thousand, and translated as my thousand. The connection is that an ox's head represents the first letter, Eleph, of the alphabet, and also the numeral one. Thus, the Eleph is used to represent a thousand. That would then correspond to the words of the blessing of Moses upon the tribe. It says in Deuteronomy 33, his glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them, he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands, the Alphe of Manasseh. And he is from Manasseh. The New King James Version paraphrases the idea of a thousand and says, my family. The only other meaning would be to go with the root signifying to learn and say, my learning is the dangling in Manasseh. But the parallelism seems to point to the thought of a thousand. As for the word dal, to dangle, it comes from dalal, meaning to languish. Thus, dal means dangling, like a weak person whose arms simply hang by his sides, unable to raise them. He's the weakest in all of Manasseh. Gideon is describing his portion of Manasseh as the most impoverished and weakest of all the tribe. Manasseh means both to forget and from a debt. With that, he next says, verse 15 continues, and I am the least in my father's house. And I, the insignificant in house, my father. From the most impoverished section of Manasseh, Gideon then acknowledges that in the house of his father, Joash, Jehovah is bestowed, he is the least, he is the smallest, he is the most insignificant. Thus, he can be of little or no help at all. Again, as we have seen, notice the lowly state of those who have been selected as judges. Othniel, first judge, was specifically noted as Caleb's hakatan, the younger. The word is derived from kut, to feel a loathing. The implication is that the elder is greater and anything less is to be despised. And yet the younger, the lesser, was the first judge. Then came Ehud, the left-handed, a perceived weakness. Next was Shamgar, son of Anat, or there a stranger, son of affliction. The name implies that he was an unlikely candidate to do anything great. After him was Deborah, who was specifically noted as a woman to highlight her supposed inferiority. Now Gideon, a person who believes that he is the least, has been chosen. Despite his perceived inability to get out of his own way, the Lord makes a promise to bolster his confidence. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Vayomer alav, Yehovah, ki imach vehikita et midyan keish echad, and said unto him, Yehovah, for I will be with you and shall strike Midian according to man one. Despite the huge number of Midianites, they will be gathered as one and destroyed. As the Lord has spoken, Gideon is to be assured. With this verse complete, we will pause the narrative for today and continue to explore the mystery of the incarnation that is so clearly and evidently presented in the text. O oh God, you are our Father and we are your children. You brought us forth for your honor and glory. You created all the children of men. We have become a part of your redemption story. It is you who begat us, and to you we lift our praise. It is you who created so that we came forth to you. It is we who turned away for seemingly endless days, but you never abandoned us. You are ever faithful and true. Oh God, our Father, bring us back to you. Turn our hearts so that we are right again. Lead us on paths that are righteous and true. Look with favor on your wayward children. Our third thought today is the incarnation. In the introduction, the fallacious arguments of Gerald Siegel were briefly analyzed. To give a fuller idea of what Judaism teaches, another portion of a commentary, Against Messianic Judaism, from Medium.com, is provided. It's pretty long, but I'll read it to you, and then we'll kind of break it down. First and foremost, the divide between Judaism and Christianity has to do with the role of Jesus, not simply 
if he was the Messiah, but whether or not he was a god. Judaism explicitly rejects Jesus as the Messiah because of his failure to fulfill the requirements of the role. Judaism also rejects the idea that a human being can be God and on principle will not worship other gods. The Christian deification of Jesus violates both the concept of monotheism and the rejection of a human incarnation of God. Both principles can be found in the Bible. Furthermore, the Torah explicitly warns against false prophets, which by any rational standard, Jesus and the apostles would fall into, even if we accepted the idea that he, they, performed miracles. Now, as I'm going through and reading the rest of this, try to think of the the fallacies that he brings in. You know what a fallacy is. It's an error in thinking, and they're all defined. There's thousands of fallacies. What are they saying that is incorrect? The Jewish commitment to monotheism can be found throughout the Bible. The first and second commandments state, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image. He goes on, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. The central statement of Jewish faith can be found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And finally, God declares his utter singularity in Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. Besides me, there is no God. These verses reveal the absolute unity of God in Jewish theology. God identifies himself as the savior of the Jews from Egyptian slavery and declares that the Jews will worship no other gods. In fact, that there are no other gods beside or with him. Jewish interpretations of these verses have led them to completely reject the Christian doctrine of the Trinity as having no basis in the Bible. Moses Maimonides, one of the greatest and most authoritative Jewish legal scholars in history, included in his 13 principles of faith, belief in the absolute unity of God. Divisions like those of the Trinity are rejected. Maimonides also included a rejection of divine incarnation as one of his principles of Jewish faith, which he grounded in the Bible. The Jewish faith rejects the idea that God would have a physical body. The prophet Hosea quotes God as saying, I am God and not a man. In the Torah, the idea that God could be a human being is explicitly rejected. God is not a man to be capricious or mortal to change his mind. Would he speak and not act, promise and not fulfill? Moving away from the Bible, there's also the logical inconsistency of the idea of an infinite, eternal God truly becoming a finite, contingent human being. The concept of God is inherently mutually exclusive from that of humanity. One cannot truly be the other without totally leaving behind the nature of the former, being, for example, if God were to truly become a human being. He would cease to be God. The incarnation not only violates the fundamental teaching of Jewish theology, but it also flies in the face of logic. Although it would take too long to argue against every point of what is said here, and in the rest of the article, and it was long, a few highlights can be noted. For example, the, this is their words, the Christian deification of Jesus violates both the concept of monotheism and the rejection of a human incarnation of God. Both principles can be found in the Bible. Actually, just the opposite is true. Only through selecting verses that are taken out of the greater biblical context can this argument be made. The human incarnation is clearly identified in the passage concerning Abraham that was cited, as well as these verses that we've been looking at in Judges 6. So they've just completely skipped over that. One might argue that this man is not the same as Jesus, but it is ridiculous to deny an incarnation occurred in those and other accounts. The references to monotheism provided in the commentary in no way negate an incarnation. And more, the idea of a singularity in deity, as explained by the author, carries the same problem as that of the false god of Islam. If God was an absolute monad and not a godhead, there would be no ability for him to extend beyond himself. He would be incapable of creating anything. But more, how could a being that didn't understand fellowship create anything beyond himself which fellowships? 
The twelfth first principle, the principle of analogy, states that the cause of being cannot produce what it does not possess. If God does not possess and thus understand fellowship, he could not create that which fellowships. The principle is undeniable, and the precept that comes from the principle is actually irrefutable. Because of this, the mere fact that we here in the church today are social beings confirms a plurality within a single essence, such as the Trinity. It doesn't confirm a Trinity, but it means there's a a secondary or a tertiary or a quad or something going on. We can find out what it is, but it does not negate a trinity. It supports it. As proof of their incorrect idea concerning absolute monotheism, Isaiah 45, 5 was cited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Beside me, there is no God. That says nothing about a possible trinity, nor does it refute the incarnation, especially if the trinity is correct. To demonstrate the illogical nature of their own analysis, the Bible in countless other verses specifically says that there are other gods, naming dozens if not more of them. The Lord is merely making a point that he is the only true God, regardless of how he has revealed himself or how scripture reveals him. In citing Hosea 11 verse 9, where the Lord says he is God and not a man, They fail to acknowledge their own scriptures that identify his incarnation. But more, those words do not disprove the idea of the incarnation. As noted earlier, the hypostatic union says that God is God and that the human Jesus is a man who is also God. They're two separate natures, eternally united, but distinct from the other. There is nothing illogical about that. As for the citation of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, they translate it as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Hebrew uses the ordinal number one. The Lord is one. However, the meaning of the number extends beyond an absolute oneness, such as in Genesis 2.24. The word is echad in Deuteronomy 6.4. Guess what it says in Genesis 2, verse 24? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one, echad, flesh. The word echad, or one, allows this. For example, a cluster of grapes is one. I cut up two of them for you this morning. Likewise, the people of Israel are one people. Both of these are made of individual parts and are termed one. There is another word which means one and only one, yachid. It was used, for example, when speaking of Abraham's one and only son, Isaac, in Genesis 22, verse 2. It is remarkable, but not unexpected, that echad, rather than yachid, was used in the Shema, because the Bible elsewhere reveals that the Godhead is a plurality within a single essence. Also, in the commentary, they say Jewish interpretations of these verses have led them to completely reject the Christian doctrine of the Trinity as having no basis in the Bible. This is known as a false dichotomy. It is a fallacy where a set of options is presented, and then the claim is made that there are only two possibilities to explain them. The verses we have presented show the incarnation is not possible, therefore we are right, and every other view is wrong. There are problems with that. First, even the verses cited are shown to not support their limited explanations of them. Also, they fail to encompass all potential options. They also fail to explain the obvious incarnation cited in Genesis and Judges. The fallacious nature of their thinking is again seen in stating this. Maimonides also included a rejection of divine incarnation as one of his principles of Jewish faith which he grounded in the Bible. This is known as a genetic or source fallacy. This must be true because someone we hold as important and learned says it's true. Claiming that Maimonides grounded his principles in the Bible must be borne out by a proper analysis of the Bible, which this point concerning the incarnation does not. The almost laughable statement that the Jewish faith rejects the idea that God would have a physical body, is completely upended when the Lord, who is God, is shown multiple times to have a physical body right in their own scriptures. 
Likewise, the final comments are equally fallacious, being straw man points. They claim that Christianity teaches something other than the hypostatic union. They say the concept of God is inherently mutually exclusive from that of humanity. One cannot truly become the other without totally leaving behind the nature of the former being, i.e., if God were to truly become a human being, he would cease to be God. The incarnation not only violates the fundamental teaching of Jewish theology, but it also flies in the face of logic. Remember what I said, hypostatic union, two natures, never interconnecting and never separate. That is the hypostatic union. No interconnecting. If it did, you would run into a heresy. No separation or you would run into a heresy. They have been taught throughout Christian teachings. Uh, you know, uh, I can't think of Sabellianism, Sabellianism and uh, there are several of them that come into play where somebody says, well, we're, we're going to accommodate somebody's thinking. We're going to say there was a little interaction between the two. No, it can't be. But there can be no separation between the two as well. So remember that he is fully God, fully man, but the natures do not in any way intermingle, nor do they separate. No reasonable teacher of the Trinity says that God became a human being. I don't know anybody that would do that that has sound theology. Thus, their argument is not based on reality, but a rejection of what God has clearly presented in both Testaments of Scripture. This rejection is exactly why the Jews have suffered the punishments of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 for the past 2,000 years. It is also the reason for the typology that is clearly presented in the histories of the first four judges of Israel and which continues to be presented in the fifth judge, Gideon. To show the odd and dismissive thinking of Judaism for their Lord Yeshua, whom they crucified but who rose again, the following words from Chosen People Ministries, a messianic body, these are believing Jews, are provided. Believing Jews wrote this. In a broad sense, it is accepted that Judaism believes that God can never be represented in human form. And this remains a major obstacle for Jewish people accepting Jesus as being who he claims to be. Judaism recognizes that human beings are created in the image of God and that God is present in the world and the nation of Israel. However, Christianity's claim that Jesus is God is simply not within the realm of Jewish thought. Yet the concept is not foreign to mainstream and historic Judaism. Judaism believes that the Torah, the first five books of this book, the Torah, the Pentateuch, that the Torah was created before the world. And thus historic Judaism came to accept that the word, the Torah, the first five books of this book, can be legitimately viewed as a form of incarnation. Some Jewish scholars will argue that even the nation of Israel is an incarnational process, and that Ezekiel 37, speaking of the dry bones, addresses this. The ridiculous words concerning Israel being an incarnational process will be overlooked. But if the Torah, the Word of God, existed before creation, then it implies that something that is not God has always existed. It would be inane to say that the Torah is God if the Torah is not God. But what is the word of God that truly must have existed before creation? It is explained not in the Old Testament, but rather in the New. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What did Jesus say to the people in John 5? You search the scriptures, for in them you uh, think you have eternal life, but they are which speak of me. I know I misquoted that, but he's saying that I am the incarnation of what you claim is eternal, meaning he is eternal. This is one of numerous verses that indicates the pre-existence of the word, meaning Jesus. What I just read you, John 1, 1 through 5. The word, as it says in John 1, 14, became flesh. He is the incarnate word that is revealed in Scripture. The very word the Jews claim always existed. For there to be a beginning, there must have been a beginner. 
And if that beginner spoke the world into existence as the Bible states in Psalm 33, verse 9, then the word existed with God before the beginning. But if there was only God at the beginning, then the word was God, is God, and will forever be God. The state of the Jewish people today is reflected in the state of Israel at the time of Gideon. They were out of favor with the Lord. They had transgressed the covenant, and they had no legitimate claim to make against him. It is they, not he, who failed to uphold the covenant between them. And yet he covenanted with them as well. And in his promises to them came the unconditional word that they would forever remain before him as a people. This has remained true without a moment of exception since their coming before him to agree to the covenant at Mount Sinai. In their rejection of Jesus, they rejected their God. And yet his infinite grace has kept them and has now reestablished them. And that grace will soon be extended to bringing them into the new covenant that was promised in the old Something better lies ahead for Israel. We are being shown this in the ongoing judge's narrative. God is ever faithful to his people, and that now means to those in the church as well. The blood of the new covenant now covers the sins of those who come to him through the cross of Christ. Let us not neglect so great a salvation. Let us accept the gospel to the saving of our souls. May it be so to the glory of God who redeems man unto himself. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without a day of exception, they have been maintained as a people. Not because they deserve it, but because God said that he would maintain them as a people forever. This is how faithful God is. Am I worried about my wife? In one respect, yes. I don't want to see her go through any pain at all. That doesn't interest me, and thinking about it bothers me greatly. Okay? But at the same time, I'm not worried about her at all when it comes to the bigger picture of things. She's saved by the blood of Christ. This is a temporary blip on the road to glory for us. And so I've talked to the Lord and I've said, Lord, I wish I could take this on myself. I've said that many times to him, but I can't. We all have our burdens to bear. We all have our crosses to carry. But I am absolutely so convinced of the accuracy of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and that he did exactly what the Bible says he did, that I will spend the rest of my life telling people about that and refuting people that take the Bible and twist it, especially the people that crucified the Lord that came to save them. Someday they will be right with him, but they've got to go through the tribulation period. And we're going to see that opened up in next week's sermon, and then after that, we're going to see it all realized for the eight sermons after that. What an astonishing thing God has put into his word. You want to tell the future? You want to know what Nostradamus thinks he knew? Open your Bible and read the Bible, because he has painted a picture of everything that lies ahead. We're not going to get the exact date of this and the exact sequence of that, but he has given us a picture of everything that's coming. We can know the future because we know the Lord God who came among us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He has revealed it to us and God has shown us in these wonderful prophetic pictures. I'm so excited about this. I just cannot wait for getting next week's sermon out of the way and then just showing you the future unfold before your eyes. It's such a wonderful thing. So, If you have never called on Jesus, you do not have the assurance that I have for myself, for my son, for my wife, for my daughter-in-law, for my brother, and for everybody else here that has called on Jesus. And I would ask you to do that today. There's nothing illogical about the incarnation. There is nothing illogical about the Trinity. It is something perfectly understandable. Even if we can't fully comprehend it, it is understandable. And it is also self-refuting. As I showed you with the first principle, there are 12 of those first principles, and they are marvelously structured by Norman G. Geisler to show us logical thinking of how we can know what is going on in the nature of God. That's why I started Genesis 1-1, read the verse, and then I analyzed God completely apart from the Bible so that you can understand what God must be like. So when you get into the rest of the Bible, you can say, does that match what we logically deduced? And so far, it's been a good Good trip. Nothing has refuted it. Everything is fit as it should. And I'll give you a hint. All the other studies we've done in the New Testament fit as well. Jesus, that's the answer. 
that is the answer. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 33. It's verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Next week is Judges 6, 17 through 24. More exciting than shooting a gun. And that's pretty swell, I'm telling you. It's entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel. Part 2. That'll be our 19th Judges Sermon. Thank you, Jay. Good stuff. Okay, um, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. And so follow him, live for him, and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I've got a poem for you. But before I give you the poem, I've got a question for you. Um, once again, hands up. Uh, I don't know which one it is. Uh, Ray gave me two things to give to the congregation. And the first is, ooh, wow, pumpkin butter. And this is from Yoder's right down the road here, buddy. Pumpkin butter. I've never had that. I think we'll try this one, and I'll take this one home. Um, <laughs> pumpkin butter. It's 18 ounces of pure delight. 510 grams. Made by Yoder's Fine Foods. Okay. Gambier, Ohio is where that's made. It's got nutrition facts on here. I can read them all to you if you want, but I won't. Okay. Uh, calories. You want to know the calories. It has... Um, Forty. I mean, you could eat the whole thing and not gain an ounce, okay? 40 calories. Okay, for this nummy, nummy pumpkin butter, raise your hand, please. In what city were Paul and Silas imprisoned after being beaten with rods? Hey, good girl. She got it. She said it at the same time the hand went up, but that's okay. Very good. Pumpkin butter for you. I want a report, okay? I uh, Three-page written report, and please put it in triplicate, okay? There you go. Thank you. Don't drop that. It looks really good. Okay. Poem, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is Gideon, Judge of Israel, Part 1. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, maybe for a little rest, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, yes, to that feller, and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? We are feeling gypped. And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. We face all these plights. Then he has delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, so you shall do. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Me, small like a mouse. Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. This you shall do. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful word which assures us, both testaments, that we're on the right path when we consider the person that came and walked among us who is also God, Jesus our Lord. Thank you that we can have that surety and that there is nothing contradictory in it, there is nothing illogical in it, because it is what you have done. It is wonderful to contemplate and it is more glorious to think about that you did it for us, that you were willing to come into this ruined world this tragically ruined world, and lead us back to yourself. What a God you are that you would do that. Thank you. Thank you, O oh God, for it. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. The 26th verse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let us make man in our image. Yeah, absolutely. Us and our. I mean, hello, something's going on there. So somebody asked me uh, by email, uh, somebody in Australia emailed me yesterday and said, you know, I wonder, 
and he was just questioning. He wasn't, you know, accusing or anything. He says, why don't you always pray in Jesus' name? And I said, I always try to include Jesus in the ending of the prayer. And then I'll say in his beautiful name or I'll change it up. And I said, the reason why I do that is because I've been in churches where every prayer has to end in Jesus' name. And it becomes rote. It becomes like legalism. And it's like anything else. You got to wear a dress below your knees and you, yeah, no dancing and you can't do this and you got to do that. It's crazy. There's a point where you have to say, I'm not going to continue to do this because I don't want to have a rote relationship with the Lord. I want to have a personal one. And so when I'm praying, I always try to think of something that's touching my own heart at the time as to why. And when I went back to him and I answered that way, he said, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. I just wanted to make sure I was tracking on the right path. So uh, Jesus is wonderful. He is so good. He is so great. And he is so glorious. And so let's have freedom of worship and not ever get legalistic in how we approach him as long as we do it with our heart and our soul and our love for him. 